0: Regular listeners might have noticed Daniel's absence last week. Uh, mm, it was, I'm sure that it was, a,
1: was
0: a, it, Daniel pretends that he was sick, but it's actually a coup. Thankfully, we've we've managed to, to push back against him, and freedom and and has been assured, and and victory has been won. Welcome to the Pin Factory. The Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co host and my head of programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as James Lawson, an ASI Senior Fellow and Business Advisor. In this episode, we'll be discussing the fall of Afghanistan, next steps for vaccinations, and political donations. Following America's withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Taliban launched a lightning offensive culminating in the total collapse of government forces and the capture of Kabul. Daniel, do you think the the U.S. withdrawal and I I suppose the the return of um, Afghanistan to Taliban was practically inevitable or was there any hope of U.S. forces remaining and and would that have been an effective response?
1: Yeah, I think to some extent it it was inevitable. As soon as the withdrawal was kind of pre-announced by Trump and then reconfirmed again by Biden in April, I think that a lot of factors around the Afghani military basically made it a a foregone conclusion. If you look, at, it wasn't just the remaining uh, 3,000 US troops that departed. It was also thousands of other allied troops, NATO allied troops, and around 18,000 contractors. And all of these really propped up in some ways an afghani military that wasn't really capable of fighting in the way that we might have expected it to and i think it you know it came as a surprise to a lot of people whether they're you know u.s uh, congress or the uk and the u.s general public just how quickly the pro-government military fell to the taliban and i think when you put that in context it makes a lot more sense these contractors that have also withdrawn they were the ones that Afghan forces relied on to operate things like their air Force and for logistical support and in the time that the Taliban has waged this campaign sort of lack of logistics for example have been a really key factor the other one really is is the morale of the forces and talk about having the best trained troops and the u.s spending tens of billions of dollars on uh, training up the Afghani army but at the end of the day and if it's not if morale is not high and it seems like it certainly wasn't in this case it seemed like most uh pro-government troops saw this as a foregone conclusion and just simply surrendered instead of fighting a hopeless cause and it's a real concern
0: there's there's no point sacrificing it and more death if, if the whole momentum is against you although i think it's probably disappointing to all that the afghani military wasn't able to hold on for a bit longer but i mm. suppose that leads to kind of the central question here though james doesn't it should the u.s have withdrawn i mean if, if you put it in international context the u.s still has thousands of troops in japan in south korea in germany even in the uk it's in australia that they have deployments all over the world is is a few thousand u.s military trips a relatively small price to pay to keep afghanistan out of the hands of A kind of fascistic extremist regime of the Taliban, as well as a potential harbor of terrorists that could attack the West. It seems totally nonsensical considering you can talk a lot about past losses in the war in Afghanistan and past failures, but the the cost of the ongoing engagement seemed extremely low compared to to the benefits that the world got out of it.
2: Yes, I think people fall into two broad camps on this topic and it's really down to kind of fundamental philosophy about how you deal with international relations so in i think in one camp you have people who are naturally inclined towards isolation who don't want to intervene in countries abroad and are hesitant whenever we have and therefore if you're in that camp you see afghanistan as this endless war with an endless price that, that that isn't worth pursuing any further. And maybe we shouldn't have gone in the first place, but certainly after 20 years, what are you going to change? At the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are much more naturally inclined towards uh, to, to, towards intervention, who think that we have a role to play in promoting democracy and liberty abroad, and who think that we can successfully affect change. And I think there are probably a spectrum of people in, in somewhere in, in the middle, but, on the, on, but naturally inclined one way or the other. I think even if you're on the isolationist side of things, you can look at the results of what's happened recently and say that the, the withdrawal was completely botched, It certainly wasn't the right way of going about it, and that in that context, perhaps it would have been better to have a much more orderly, much slower withdrawal, Make sure that, make, make sure that better foundations were in place. And the counter will always be, but for how much longer you've been there for twenty years? So I don't, I don't think it's a, an an easy one to answer. I think it does come back down to kind of fundamental philosophy of where you sit on uh, intervention abroad and and whether or not you think that's a, a good idea. But in the short term, I think we can fairly decisively say that we didn't have enough patience and that we we we, we botched it this time.
1: I think a good way of thinking about this from a kind of more pure economics terms is looking at the opportunity cost of interventions such as the war in Afghanistan for example but plenty of others i think lend themselves to this sort of analysis and if you compare that if you think about the opportunity cost of the Afghanistan war for example cost the us between 4 and 6 trillion dollars combined with the iraq war i should say in wartime expenditures and things like future medical bills for veterans and to put that in context and this is done a, a paper a few years ago by um, by John Quiggin. That's about 10 times the total amount of aid received by the whole of Africa since 1945. So I think it's worth thinking about the actual cost of these interventions and the ongoing cost of these interventions being so high. Is there a way we could have affected the same sort of change that I think most liberal kind of interventionists are, are looking for when it comes to promoting freedom, democracy, the rule of law, etc. But in a way that was more cost-effective, perhaps. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case.
0: Daniel, though, in in this case, you have to be careful of the sunk cost fallacy, (laughs) which is to say, just because focusing on the the past costs of, of intervention in afghanistan is not actually a good way to make a forward-looking decision so my yeah. argument would be um yes there was been expensive and I, I think afghanistan was is often confused with iraq which is probably a lot less of just justified intervention although getting with istami saying i think is a moral good afghanistan was more specifically justified in order to remove the the operating pad that uh, al-qaeda had and then the wars kind of dragged on and, and the taliban have been far more successful as an insurgent force than expected but at least at the moment now i think the counter argument here would be well the only reason the taliban weren't much of a problem in the last six months is because they knew that the u.s was withdrawing and if the yeah. u.s wasn't withdrawing this might have continued to be an issue on the other hand though you could have just played a bluff <laughs> to some extent with the afghanistan like, yeah, yeah we're withdrawing we're drawing," and then you just you kind of hold on your troops and, and you, you keep never longer and that's effectively what two past presidents have done they've said they're withdrawing that actually doing it which seems to be in some ways the, the best strategy uh, it kind of comes with my thought in my head is well, is this trump's fault well trump didn't actually pull the trigger and therefore biden is the one who gets his foreign policy responsibility he's also the one who assured us again and again that afghanistan would not fall that the taliban weren't about to take it over that it's not going to be like vietnam well what did you have you had american helicopters evacuating people from from the u.s embassy i don't know what could be more vietnam than that yeah.
1: Yeah, the uh, although you, you're right that Trump didn't pull the trigger on this one. He certainly played a role in setting up this timetable for withdrawal. And I feel like there's a kind of conflict between domestic priorities here and between them and international priorities when it comes to the political incentive for politicians for things like wars that aren't very popular or continued foreign intervention is to pre-announce withdrawal and give a timetable in things like election promises and as addresses to the wider general public. But in some ways, that can be quite counterproductive in that what you're basically doing is you're giving the Taliban a nice little timetable to prepare their offensive as soon as US troops get out of the country and as soon as NATO troops and contractors leave. So there is kind of an argument here that maybe if if you are going to withdraw, that you shouldn't make it such a a formal pre-announced process to the wider world and perhaps consult and let the Afghan military know. Yeah, I
0: mean, you absolutely shouldn't tell your enemy when you're leaving. I mean, this is what America has done quite a few times in Afghanistan, and it, it, it's revved up the Taliban in, in response. I suppose the, the kind of next question that comes to mind in terms of what this kind of says about Western power and our ability to intervene. Um, we, we saw Taliban immediately reaching out to Russia and China, and, and China's already, at least some, some people in the, the Chinese media have linked this to Taiwan and said, well, this shows that the US isn't going to be there to protect you. And I'm afraid it kind of really does send that signal, doesn't it, James, that if, if we're willing to sacrifice Afghanistan to Taliban, what, what kind of power projection do we, do we have in, in the next threats that we're now facing?
2: Yeah, I think you, you've even seen some people make comparison to the, the, the Suez crisis as a kind of defining moment of Western power shifting. And is, is this effectively America's, America's Suez crisis? I, I definitely saw the, uh, the tweets from the Chinese media quite aggressively suggesting that this means that the U.S. won't be there to protect you and that Taiwan will fall in a, in a similar matter of days if, if they were into to enter armed conflict.
0: And, and I guess the most harrowing scenes that we've seen in recent days are, are those from the, the airport in Kabul, where there's been the, the last stand of, of um, coalition forces holding on to that key asset in order to evacuate people, but at the same time turning kind of quite chaotic and, and people jumping onto the planes and and tragically as it took off falling off onto the ground as as well as this kind of ongoing reports of despite promises from the Taliban as as if they're a reliable partner for promises that people can't get to the airport and and there's a lot of human rights activists, Western forces, journalists and and women who who now face persecution trying to get out of the country. The the UK's announced a program for 20,000 people to come over on, on top of the existing commitments to people who worked with British forces. Is that enough?
1: Clearly, it's it's not. And the 20,000 figure is over the course of several years. And I can't imagine if you're one of the people clinging to the evacuation planes, that the Home Office telling you, don't worry, you can come in two or three years time in the next wave of uh, our refugee resettlement program, that's going to be of much comfort. It's certainly good that the government is deciding to do something like this, as they did with Syria, and, and it's better than nothing. But I think Just on the resettlement program alone, you have to either commit to having that number over a much shorter time period or ideally increasing that number as well. And I think that the kind of Home Office's record on asylum applications from Afghanistan in recent months is not very encouraging when it comes to this uh, this sort of area. They've rejected as many as half of recent Afghan asylum applications. But the other aspect to this, uh, the refugee, the inevitable refugee crisis that we are going to experience, is that a lot of people, simply for various good reasons, don't go through an official resettlement program. They don't have time to fill in the forms needed or to to queue up and wait in order to. Protect themselves from imminent danger. The Taliban knocking at their door and making lists that they're going to—they're going to be hunting down undesirables as soon as the U.S. is out of the way. If you're someone in that situation, you don't have time to go through the bureaucracy of an official resettlement program. Oftentimes, you're going to up sticks as quickly as you can, get out the country in any way you can, and that might not be through an official route. So it's important that, as well as we having this official resettlement program, so make it easier for people who arrive through unofficial routes to be able to secure protection in the UK. And it's something that I think we have a special moral responsibility for, and we owe these people for, not just the people who work directly with us, but also the wider Afghan population, where our intervention alongside that of NATO partners and allies, you know, whatever you think of it, it's certainly ended up in a way that is not ideal for them it might be that the the intention was good and that actually we had some initial successes and things like that but the Taliban has taken over again and many people not just the ones that worked with us but especially women and girls aren't safe right now and we should make it as easy as possible for them to flee danger and their evil.
0: I think it's absolutely right Daniel this is a moment of real moral reckoning for the West not only is the the fall of Afghanistan back to the Taliban the, the direct consequence of the decision by the US to, to pull out and NATO forces to, to not um, put forward a, a replacement. At the same time, there's I think even if it had nothing to do with us, we, we question of do we have a responsibility to, to provide a place of refuge for those who are seeking to flee persecution? And, and this is always a difficult issue. And it, it's something that obviously you can't practically take everyone but you, you do want to provide a safe haven to, to people who are going to be oppressed. And many times before we've failed to do this, it's worth remembering the Refugee Convention was established following uh, World War II and the Holocaust. And somebody on Twitter the other day was saying, well, the UK did a great job accepting 70,000 uh, Jews in the Holocaust. And of course, uh, you know that that was an uh, excellent decision, but it wasn't enough with, with millions of people who were hmm. unable to leave Europe. And we've seen again a kind of the failure to help support Rwanda and the responsibility to protect principle and again and again the world has kind of failed and it's more responsibility to, to try to support people who are fleeing persecution and, and I think the best solution to this is to make sure that there are kind of safe legal routes it is a fair complaint to say that the Taliban or Al-Qaeda are going to try to sneak in some of their supporters and militants into a refugee program that's why you, you make sure you have proper processing and you do it properly and it, that means having processes in place to, through refugee camps to assess people and, and assess their claim to asylum. But to do that as, as quickly and, and reasonably as possible, and to do it for as many people as possible, and I really like to see the UK stand up and offer a large, much larger program, but also lead the world in, in terms of encouraging other countries to, to also offer um, substantial and, and very generous uh, refugee resettlement offer. It doesn't have to be the, the same as after Syria, where, where you had a million people kind of coming into Europe who often weren't processed. And, and I think you, you saw a lot of political pushback to that. I don't think that's a process we want to see repeated. You actually want quite the opposite of it, where you, you can process people in various countries and then offer them places of refuge so that, so that you don't have this issue of the, these constant flows. It's not a, a perfect idea, and, and inevitably there's, there's going to be limits to it as you're going to be only so many people who countries are willing to accept. But, but I think it does take some political leadership to, to make this point. And we've only seen a very small amount of it with this commitment to 20,000 over five years, as you've said. But on that note, time to move on to a very different, more domestic focus topic, the next step for vaccines. <laughs>
1: Despite taking an early lead in our vaccination program, the latest figures show that nearly three million young adults in the UK are still yet to receive their first vaccine dose. Uh, and it was only last week that sources recorded the highest daily COVID-19 death toll since March. James, coming to you on this first, you wrote about accelerating the vaccination program at the start of January. Would you say it's been accelerated and how would you rate its progress at the moment?
2: So Dan, I'll be honest, it's been a bit of an emotional journey. Overall, we have made wonderful progress, but I'm hard to please. I I see various flaws across the campaign and there are still huge risks ahead. So if we take a step back, we're now, what is it, 15 plus months into the pandemic. There've been over 130,000 confirmed deaths. That's almost twice as many British civilians that have died from COVID as were killed in the entire Second World War. We've suffered unprecedented restrictions on our liberties. So it's been a a tough time. And uh, back in December, we were very worried. It was the peak of the second wave. And vaccines came along as this beacon of hope to, to 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 save the day. We were the first in the world to approve the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. And initially the rates of vaccination were super slow. So we looked over to Israel and saw that they were vaccinating at a, a rate that was ten to twenty times faster. Um, and it wasn't just the rate that was really slow, it was also the lack of ambition. So the government target of one million doses per day meant that we wouldn't have got round to all of the the phase one, the most vulnerable, the 50, those over 50, and those of pre-existing conditions that, uh, that account for over 99% of mortality risk. We wouldn't have got round all of them with just one dose uh, until late 2022. And so it's brilliant that we've been able to speed up the rate significantly and we've got to a position where we have actually given uh, or offered two doses not only to everybody in that group but to all adults and that we're now targeting those uh, above uh, the age of 16 and and off the, the 22 recommendations the ASI made over half of them were trialed or partly adopted or even fully Im- embraced and so either through our influence or just sheer luck and serendipity, the vaccination rate did increase as much as tenfold. That said, we never reached the SI's target of six million doses a week, and we have seen the vaccination rate, as you say, slow in in, in recent in recent weeks. And so there's there's certainly room for improvement still.
1: So on that vaccination rate slowing in recent week, have we got any kind of new ideas for trying to boost vaccine update uptake again do you think we should be using incentives or perhaps even vaccine passports
2: yes it's it's an interesting question i guess firstly why have they slowed down is quite hard to get to the bottom of we've now got six eu nations belgium denmark ireland portugal and malta who have overtaken us in terms of vaccination percentages and others like france italy and germany are hot on our heels and it's unclear exactly why it slowed so much. We were never good at vaccinating on weekends and over holidays. And that's something that we, we've we complained about in the past. We made some interesting decisions around the Oxford, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, particularly for under 40s, and, and effectively stopped supplying that vaccine to them and, and thus reducing our supply of vaccines. The data now shows that that might have been a, a mistake. The risk of those same side effects from catching the virus is much, much higher if you than with than, than AstraZeneca um, and comparable with other vaccines like Pfizer. And I guess another factor is that we were quite slow at extending the the vaccine to, to younger groups, and those younger groups are, are less enthusiastic about getting, getting the vaccine. So what can we do about it? You mentioned incentives and vaccine passports. On vaccine passports, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm against them out of principle. I think they're illiberal. I think they're they're morally wrong to to withhold services uh, from people. Based on from based on their, uh, their their medical status, and I think ultimately they're counterproductive as well because it becomes a decision then of the state imposing something on people rather than it being being a choice. But I'm not against consenting adults making their own decisions and businesses making their own decisions. I wouldn't personally disown an anti-vaxxer friend, but others might not be so so generous. And I think it's more about education and incentives the the latter option. So making sure that we encourage more of the the phase one vulnerable group to Get vaccinated, still 10% of them haven't, haven't adopted it for various reasons. And I think in, in, in encouraging and incentivizing younger generations who feel there's less in it for them, making it easy, paying for maybe their Uber on the way to the vaccine center or giving them vouchers or entering them into lotteries is a good idea.
0: I, I think you're absolutely right, James. At, at this point, uh, the, the vaccination program, the UK was once world leading, is basically being caught up by uh, a lot of other countries. Although this earlier speed, no doubt, saves a lot of lives, you've got to think about how we get those final slither of the population vaccinated. Now, there, there are some serious anti-vaxxers. I, I think, according to the, the latest ONS survey I saw, there's about 4% of people just practically would never get a vaccine. That means, though, you've got a, another 6 eight percentage points of, of people who are basically open to the idea of getting vaccinated, that they just haven't got around to it. And then and even... As, Kind of another 20% or so who haven't bothered to get their second dose. So in that kind of circumstance, there's a clear need to push um, on those people. And I, I think the, the fact that although we have a lot of COVID cases, we've removed all restrictions, it seems like it's something we're, we're not talking about as much anymore, has removed a lot of the sense of urgency from getting vaccinated. And I, I, I worry that that's creating a sense of complacency. Since we still, do, we still do have a lot of cases, there still is a risk of, of new variants spreading around and and whatnot and, and causing further disruption. And ultimately, I, I see a apocalyptically terrible scenario where even with the, a, the Delta variant combined with, let's say, a, a bad flu season because the flu hasn't been going around for a couple of years, we end up in a situation where there's all these calls for lockdown again at the end of the year in, in winter because it looks like the NHS is being overwhelmed. And the best way to fix that is just to minimise the spread of COVID. We know that vaccines do, although vaccinated people who test positive often have similar viral loads, you're 60, 70% less likely to get, get COVID. And that reduces the spread, reduces the chance of it reaching someone who is vulnerable and, and could end up in hospital or could end up dying. So it's about just doing that final push to, to ensure that as many people as possible are vaccinated and incentivizing that, I think in a positive way, as James has said, not necessarily restricting people's liberties to achieve that goal.
2: Yeah, I just add that the the ratchet effect of government and the Overton window of what's acceptable policy has shifted so far over the over the crisis that it will be very easy for politicians to be tempted towards heavy restrictions or lockdowns in scenarios that previously seemed completely unthinkable. So just a bad flu season or an, a new variant of COVID that, whilst uh, not having the same impact in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. Emulate something off a of flu season, and, and, and therefore we find ourselves plunged into into, into crisis uh, uh, again, even when the medical crisis is 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 nowhere near near as bad. So uh, I agree 100%. It's all now about maximising the the country's resilience towards this respiratory disease and other respiratory diseases to protect lives, make sure that we're safe, but also uh, enable us to restore our liberties and be confident that there won't be any temptation to restrict them. In a, in a, in a similarly dramatic way again.
1: Well, let's finish up this section with some discussion of what the next stages for our vaccination program should be. We've mentioned incentives already, but there's issues like should we be vaccinating children younger than 16, or things like booster shots. The debate over whether or not we should be using supplies for booster shots or uh, giving them out internationally, uh, and then also the kind of prospect of any newer vaccines coming along. I guess just to start with this question of allowing parents to decide whether their children should be vaccinated when they're under sixteen. What are your thoughts on that, James?
2: Yeah, so I guess my my starting point is is, is back to what you're we saying in the last section that the the uh the vaccines are extremely effective. We've seen a what I call a vaccine dividend, so a ninety percent reduction in the number of deaths in in this in this wave versus the the second wave for the same number of cases and we do see even with the delta variant that it it reduces the the spread of the virus as well the virus isn't going anywhere the delta variant is challenging and there's a risk of an ultra delta variant one day and so in in that environment i think there's a very good reasons why young people under the age of 16 and their parents would be interested in 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 getting in getting vaccinated uh, i'm not saying that we should impose that upon them but I think it's something that uh, an informed parent and their child ought to be able to 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 opt into. Um, and in doing so, reduce the risk of, of the virus to that child, reduce the, the risk to wider society at the same time as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a win-win, I think.
0: I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I can't say a good argument for... Restricting children's access to the vaccine, and surveys of parents indicate that most of them are happy to see their, their kids get the vaccine. And it's even possible it could provide some longer-term protection, because so we know COVID is going to be around for many, many years. And, and getting those antibodies and that immune system primed to face COVID at relatively young age, perhaps even on a, a reduced size of of the dosage, could actually be quite safe and effective. And I think there's some more research to be done on that front. Just moving on to other questions though, Daniel, I think it's absolutely nuts. The UK hasn't formally begun a booster program. We've already seen it going on in Israel for immunocompromised people aged over the 60. Current plans are really only to provide um, boosters to a very limited set of people, even though the research is pretty clear that the immunity from COVID wanes over time. I think the government absolutely needs to open up booster shots to everyone uh, as, as soon as possible, starting with the, the priority list.
2: So I was just going just add that Israel are already at twelve percent of the the population having received a, a a booster shot. So by international standards, we're we're already falling falling behind falling behind the leaders. And
0: and then I think the last question out there, Danny, was about um, next generation vaccines, which are going to be absolutely essential, uh, both in in terms of fighting future variants that are more vaccine resistant as the evolutionary pressure might lead towards. Um, But also on top of that, uh, I think there's a lot of hope for some vaccines that are actually a lot more effective. There's T cell based vaccines, for example, that that could give a a broader immunity to to all different types of coronaviruses rather than just specifically different variants of of COVID-19. And that could actually stop people getting COVID and allow elimination of the virus if it's a lot more effective. So uh, we haven't heard too much from the government about their investment in those type of vaccines that might not be here in the next six months. But if we're gonna think like we did in the original vaccine um, procurement, we we should be investing very big to to try to eliminate COVID if possible using the the latest technology. And and that's something where the UK I think risks potentially falling behind if we don't invest soon, because there's gonna be a lot of orders and a lot of pressure onto these these next generation vaccines. And again, I think it's just about remembering, okay, yes, we did well at the start here, but complacency is what, what breeds terrible lack of preparation and and failure in the future
1: well some truly excellent suggestions for how to boost the uk's vaccination program there and i think with that we'll move on to our final section of the podcast on the morality of political donations
0: conservative party co-chair ben elliott has come under pressure following revelations of a secretive advisory board for top donors with special access to senior politicians Daniel, was it wrong for the Conservatives to not declare the existence of a, a donor club of, of this description? Or is this simply kind of normal political practice that of course the Tories accept money and, and have a special donor clubs and dinners and lunches and what else for people who provide support to their political party?
1: My first reaction as a Liberal is just that this is a question of free association, free speech and the right to privacy when it comes to these sort of things. There's nothing that kind of suggests to me that this particular sort of speech and association should have any sort of legal scrutiny on it that's different from what we'd have on anything else. Now, you know, the, the kind of classic counter-argument to this and one that I think is fairly popular is that all these sort of things make a big difference to uh, to political outcomes and to what actually happens in terms of political decision-making and policy formation, that you have a, a small group of very influential People that get to to effectively decide or at least steer the government's agenda, and that's obviously you know true to some extent. But I think the way that it's often portrayed is, is significantly overplayed in terms of just how much these people, uh, these donor clubs, have influence over uh, the Conservative Party. To be honest,
0: Jamesy, are you worried about the role that money plays in in politics, or do you share? Daniel's uh, sunny, some would say naive optimism that money isn't too
2: yeah. influential. I'm probably not as not as optimistic as Dan, but I do agree at the core that it's a question of free association, and so what you need to look at is what was the actual impact of this donor club i think most of these sorts of donor clubs and dinners have extremely limited or absolutely no impact on 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 the policy agenda and as a result there's there's not a huge amount to worry about where however a contract was awarded because somebody was able to influence a minister that's a very different very different thing but the the burden of proof on that Ought to be higher. Just attending a, a dinner, going for drinks with a minister—that in itself isn't isn't a, isn't a crime, and, and I don't think should attract as much uh, scrutiny as it does. And ultimately, I think this is one of those issues that is perhaps more more excited and more excitable within the the SW1 bubble um, than uh, than reality. Until it extends uh, into that more nefarious domain.
1: Yeah, I feel like th- there's a kind of common misconception around these sort of things, that they are regularly meeting in order to decide the future of government policy, whereas in fact it's, and maybe the the various parties won't particularly like to admit this, but it seems like more of a, a luxury kind of consumption good for the donors in that they get to rub shoulders with the, the rich and famous and influential, and the same for the, the politicians, to be honest. It's just a, a, mainly an entertainment good as opposed to something that, results in, for example, a particular, you know, government contract being awarded. And of course, where that does happen, and it does sometimes, then there should be a lot of scrutiny around that. I think that it's not, you know, it's, it's not unheard of, and we've heard it in, in recent times, but the vast majority of this stuff is just making extremely rich people feel like they're a part of the in-group, <laughs> in for want of a better word.
2: The other element is there's always just going to be a correlation between people having a political view supporting a political party that has similar views and that party implementing policies that in some way reflect that view. And it doesn't mean that they had any influence on, on the process at all. You can imagine under a conservative, liberal, Labour or coalition government that that happens all the time. And it, it doesn't mean that something corrupt and nefarious has taken place. Now, if something corrupt and nefarious has taken place, if there is kind of crony capitalism or crony politics, then I'm wholeheartedly a- a- against that. But I think there's a, there's a big gap between having a, a, a nice black tie dinner or, or some some cocktails with a with a minister, um, as you say, a bit of a, a luxury good, and actually having any influence on government policy. To do that, you need to you need to you know re- really go out there and and make a convincing argument. I think in in the UK today,
0: kind of like in my mind, the the example of uh, a, let's say you're a private railway company and you, you give a donation to the Tory Party before the last election because you're worried that. labor is going to nationalize your industry and is basically going to destroy your existence. Now, I don't think it's necessarily the fact that giving that donation changes the policy, but you as a private company have chosen to express your political opinion, to express your speech through the the giving of of money. I think it's the same for the thousands of people who give their money to the Tory party or for that matter, the Labor party or the Lib Dems is they're effectively expressing their view through the, the donation of money to that political party. And where things go wrong, is, is when there's corrupt influence, when the, there's, and I think it obviously does happen, maybe more than we'd like to admit, I'm not completely certain, it's, it's hard to spot these things, where regulations or tax policy or whatever else is, is decided at the whim of the donor because of their access as a result of giving a donation. But... I there it's, it's, there is a lot of kind of strict rules around this that should at the very least ensure there's some transparency with, with who and what they mean. And getting rid of donations, we should also add, won't actually solve that problem. It'll just be a more pernicious problem where those who are the best socially connected rather, um, are the ones who end up having influence through, you know, even the civil service who they can talk to and identify, let alone through ministers and MPs.
2: I guess my, my other thought on this is ultimately if you want to reduce corruption in government and reduce contracts crony capitalist contracts being awarded the best way of doing this is not to have bigger government and more more regulations and more complexity but actually to limit the remit and the scope of the state and the less that the state's hand extends itself into into the private sector then the less need to try and influence policy in in that way and the less temptation uh, towards corruption
1: Right, you either take the rich people out of politics or you take the politics away from rich people. And I think that the latter is the more classical liberal and more effective solution when it comes to these sort of issues. And for me, a lot of this this talk about the specific donations to political parties, there there are, you know, as, as we said, there are cases where they result in a particular contract being awarded or a particular example of crony capitalism. But for me, the, the biggest and, uh, and often less appreciated manifestation of crony capitalism is the sort of private meetings that companies will have not for money or or anything like that but just quiet chats with a minister or an mp where they'll try and make the point that oh if we just introduce this regulation it'd be better for the whole industry and your constituents would be very happy and of course that particular regulation would benefit them at the incumbent at the expense of new entrants for example it's a case that you see time and time again across many many different industries and in, the UK where it's not the explicit I'm going to give x political party money and they're going to do this that's not the main thing that's the the issue here the main problem is I think you should bring in this regulation or change this tax rule for the greater good the politician feels very good about it and doesn't realize that they're unwittingly performing the the role of the kind of company in question that's proposed it to them in the first place and that's something that that we should or we ought to look at more and we ought to examine more but we tend to be distracted because these sort of someone gave uh, lots of money to the political party stories tend to be more titillating more exciting it, it
0: creates good images as well of a black tie dinner and the the the, the story yeah. of rich people getting together or even no i think what's interesting about this ben elliott case is no one's actually managed to link it to any decisions that have been made by the government in in favor of mm-hmm. those donors ben elliott himself was made his fortune as providing concierge services to the rich and famous in a way you were talking about there, Daniel, where he was providing them very expensive consumption goods, the tickets at the front row to the sold out concert, the, you know, weekends away and Ibiza on a private jet, whatever it may be, that organizer for you. And you can say it's a little bit dodgy that he's trying, might be, If he was selling from his business perspective access to Tory leaders. I mean, I think that would be a bit of a conflict of interest for him. But if if all he's doing is providing kind of a different sort of consumption good, which is, you know, you get a bit of a chin wag with a minister, you have to be crazy to think a minister is making a decision at a cocktail party or a black tie dinner on some controversial political matter. You know, the the classic case here was, was the Robert Jenrick one, where he got in a lot of trouble for being lobbied at so he was lobbied at about um, some requirements in relation to a, a development in Canary Wharf and the controversy was well he then tried to support that development now Robert Gemmick- Generally, as someone who likes to see building more homes, it was actually not necessarily surprising. This person barely paid any money to be at that dinner. It was the kind of cheapest, in a sense, political persuasion technique. And in the end, of course, he had to recuse himself from it and the decision was made independently of of Jenrick just because of all those conversations that he had. It seemed like quite a ridiculous circumstance to say that Jenrick had actually done anything corrupt or that the money necessarily changed the decision that had been made. But I think that's this perception of politicians, though, is is the problem that they are, you know, quite corrupt and it takes is giving them a fiver to change their policy.
1: Yeah, it comes back to what James said a few minutes ago about the confusion between correlation and causation. If I'm a politician that for my entire political career goes out saying we need to build more homes, we need to build more homes, and then say a development company comes along and gives the party I belong to an absolute ton of money and I carry on saying what I've always said, which is we should build more homes, we should build more homes, I don't think it's something that we necessarily need to worry about or that has any particularly strong causal effect. But it seems like, I think a lot of the time as well, it, it's, it's people being quite disingenuous in ascribing particular motives to politicians where they're just trying to score a, a cheap political yeah. point and say, so-and-so is corrupt because their, their wider organisation took money uh, from an organisation that supports what they support anyway.
0: There was interesting broader study that's particularly in the American sense that tried to assess what kind of decisions do politicians make and and is it reflective of their constituents' opinions, the opinions of their donors or was it the opinions of kind of the elite kind of social class? And so what it more or less found is whatever the elite consensus was is what politicians do. It's it's got relatively little to do with money. But I, I suppose the the other question there is the Tories are getting a lot of suck about this. I mean, it seems like the Labour Party is traditionally the party, isn't it, James, that has a very clear connection to a sectional interest, aka the union movement, and is receiving constant donations and constant influence. And um, we saw this particularly during the Corbyn era with kind of some quite extreme unions pushing certain people in, and, but at the same time, they're kind of trying to influence Keir Starmer at this all that going on. Is it, There's a reason why we hear a bit less about the union influence on Labour.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's right, Matt. And if you look at the donation data over the last decades, uh, approximately sixty percent of funding to the Conservative Party has come from individual members. And when I say individual members, there's a a, a threshold of, of declaration there, right? By comparison with the with with the Labour Party, forty to fifty percent of their funding has consistently come from 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 the trade unions. Um, and so you can see very clearly how the the trade unions have a will will have a huge influence on on the on the party's policies, given that they they represent half of the funding, and it's not just a one-off donation; it's a consistent stream of funding. And 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 by comparison, the the Labour Party only about fifteen percent of their uh, funding comes from from individuals, and they also get a huge amount of funding from from companies. They actually get a larger share of funding from unincorporated associations and and other groups like that than than, than the Conservative Party. So when you put the numbers in perspective. I I I I don't think they have much of a leg to stand on in terms of criticizing one party or, or the or the other, um, and it's more about looking at the general principle of whether or not it's okay to donate to parties and how they're funded in general. I do
1: think, and I'm not going to say this too often on this podcast, that we need to be fair to Labour here as well. If we're going to be making, I think, the correct argument that you know people fund the the Tories because the Tories are doing things that they like to do anyway and that happen to kind of correlate with the desires of their donors then the same is likely to be true when it comes to the Labour Party you know people join the Labour Party because they want to support things that the trade union movement tends to support as well and it's not necessarily a case of well if the trade union stopped funding the Labour Party we'd suddenly see Labour support free markets and uh, and, you know low taxes etc I think that there is still that kind of broader ideological position that they hold regardless of of where their funding would come from now you know obviously it's a strange hypothetical in the sense you can't really imagine a Labour Party without its trade union backing so it doesn't quite work as a a realistic thought experiment it could be argued though that if say trade union funding as a proportion of it went down then we would start to see maybe more of a move towards towards the center i don't know what the case was in the blair years for example whether there was any difference in in funding there or in fact in, under the Starmer years where we've seen a bit more of a move towards moderation but perhaps there will be some impact i i just worry that uh you know if we kind of attack Labour too much for their trade union funding, then we're kind of being inconsistent in our position when it comes to other parties.
2: I'd agree with that, Dan. I mean, ultimately, the Labour Party was formed out of the trade union and trade union movement and out of socialist societies. So it's not surprising that the trade unions and socialist societies are to this day their their biggest biggest source of funding. I think where it's just important to note it is that it is a very concentrated source and therefore does have a, a big influence on policy more than I think any one uh, individual donor could have on other parties where they're, they're delivering a small proportion.
0: Of course the Labour Party is a union party and, and they have delegates and direct control in terms of voting over the party yeah. <laughs> by design which probably is actually the more direct source of influence from the union movement on labor which which i think in a sense is kind of under talked about that, that the union movement is in themselves an interest and a legitimate interest all the same but an interest and and therefore labor party is um, by definition only supposed to represent a, a certain section of society but I think on that final note, though, if anyone would like to, uh, from a socialist background, give um, some of their hundred cash to the ASI, we'll be happy to take it and not change any of our opinions as a consequence. So if any of our socialist friends are listening to this podcast, just just um, you know, feel free to pop some money into our bank account. Uh, but, but on that note, you, you can also donate uh, if, if you're enjoying this podcast and, uh, and uh, would like to see more content from the ASI. And, and thank you, though, very much for... Uh, joining this week's episode of the PM Factory, you, you've been listening to uh, myself, Matthew Lesh, the head of research at the ASI, my co-host, Daniel Pryor, and James Lawson, who's a senior fellow at the ASI and business advisor. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and subscribe in your chosen podcast provider and tune in next week for more banter analysis.